This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Hey, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us tonight for this debate between the Democratic candidates for Assembly District 76. I'm Chris Murphy, Managing Editor of the Cap Times. In just a moment, I'll be turning this over to our moderator, Brianna Riley, but I want to take just one second to let you know that we'll be conducting one more debate before the primary in August. One week from today, on July 29, we'll have the candidates for Senate District 26 here. You can see that live like you are now, or it'll also be posted on captimes.com, just like the debates we've hosted for the Democratic candidates in Senate District 16 and Assembly District 48. So without further delay, I'm going to turn the forum over to Brianna, who's our politics reporter here at the Cap Times. Welcome, Brianna. Thanks, Chris, and thanks for the introduction. Thanks to all of you, too, for tuning in, tuning in this evening to the Cap Times 76 Assembly District Democratic Primary Debates. Joining me tonight are the seven candidates, the seven Democratic candidates looking to succeed outgoing State Representative Chris Taylor in the district that spans the length of Madison's Isthmus. The contenders are Dewey, Bra- Dewey Bradison, who works in, real, in commercial real estate, Heather Driscoll, an advocate for environmental issues and gun safety measures, Francesca Hong, a, co- a chef and co-owner of Morris Ramen, Ali Marsh, a mental health advocate and former state employee, Madison School Board member Nikki Vandermulen, a juvenile attorney and disability rights advocate, Madison Alder Marsha Rummel, a state employee, and Tyrone Craddock William a police officer who also works to boost financial literacy among young people. Thank you all for being here tonight. Democratic voters will choose between the seven candidates on August 11th, and the winner will face the lone Republican in the race, Patrick Hall, in the November general election. All voters within the 76th Assembly District will also have the opportunity, as Chris mentioned previously, to elect a new state lawmaker in the 26th Senate District. The Cap Times will host a Democratic primary debate for that seat on July 29th or next week Wednesday at 7 p.m. And you can watch it on our website or Facebook page. For this event, our seven candidates will get two minutes each for their opening and closing statements. And in between, I will be asking them questions, some posed to all candidates and some individually. For most of the questions I'll be asking this evening, candidates will have two minutes to answer. Each candidate will also have four opportunities to make one-minute responses to a question directed at an opponent. Given that there are seven of you, we will be strict about keeping candidates to time. If you go over in your response to a question, I will first issue a verbal warning, and if the practice continues, we may have to resort to cutting mics. Hopefully not, though. Please keep to your time as much as possible so we're able to get to all of the topics that we can. Now, we'll begin with opening statements. Prior to the start of this debate, Chris did a drawing to determine the order. Mr. Bradison, we will start with you. You have two minutes to provide opening remarks. Thank you, Brianna. And I would also like to thank the Cap Times for hosting this debate and all the people who care enough about democracy to watch this debate out there in the internet land. First, a little about me. I'm currently live on the outer square with my wife, Sandy, and our Labradoodle, Nellie. I've lived in the Madison area for the past 54 years. I attended the Madison Public Schools from first through 12th grades and graduated from Madison East High School and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. For the past 37 years, I've worked in commercial real estate and started my own real estate company in 1987. Two years ago, my wife and I bought a 100-plus-year-old building, started out as a large house, and it has had various uses until we turned it into a four-unit apartment, providing housing for us and others. I enjoy travel, reading, the outdoors. I'm a two-time Ironman Wisconsin finisher. Up until a few months ago, we loved going out to see a band or a comedian or the farmer's market or festivals in and around Madison. 
I appreciate the vibrant multicultural environment that is the 76th Assembly District and celebrate the disparate backgrounds of the people that live here. So, if elected, I will oppose any and all attempts to suppress the votes of any Wisconsin citizen. I will advocate for more affordable housing. I support a nonpartisan approach to redistricting. I support sufficient funding for K-12 through education. I support restoring the prestige of the University of Wisconsin. I see the next two years being all about the COVID epidemic and, will, and it will affect all my priorities. People are suffering, businesses are going under, and the government budget has been busted this COVID, by this COVID-19 virus. On top of that, small businesses in the state's recapital square area were vandalized and looted. We are suffering physically, mentally, and financially. We are fearful for our income, for our income, our housing, our education, and health. These are the biggest needs in the 76th district, and these will be my priorities. Thank you. Ms. Hong, you're next. You have two minutes. Thanks, Brianna. Thank you, Chris, and to the CAP Times and the viewers for having us today. Look, this isn't about me. It's about collective new leadership with a stake in their community who is willing to challenge established ideals and the status quo. It's about electing people who understand that leadership enables coalition building and seeks to empower and care for those around them. When COVID-19 hit, I worked and struggled alongside my team to try and find as many options for them while providing wages even though we were closed. I organized other small business leaders to communicate the needs of our industry to elected officials. I transformed my restaurant into a community kitchen so we could supplement the various organizations already in the community working tirelessly to provide meals for food and secure families. I understand that I'm only capable of doing what I can by recognizing the strength and empowering others that we can all do more. During this time of concurrent crises of racism and the pandemic, I've watched leaders in our community rise up and mobilize people to fight for justice and change. We must step aside and share decision-making powers with Black, Indigenous, people of color leaders who understand that equity and justice is different from performative inclusion and diversity. We need leadership willing to seek out and listen to youth leaders when it comes to fighting systemic injustices because it is our youth who are growing up with these injustices who are born into a recession, harmed by climate change, police violence, and now a pandemic. Our leadership now is failing us. We need new leadership from people like me who prioritizes preserving our shared humanity and providing the tools for all people to be agents of their own change and empowerment. Thank you. Thank you. Alder Rummel, you're next for your opening statement. You have two minutes. Oh, and don't forget to unmute. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for being here and all the viewers out there. We are in the middle of three pandemics. COVID-19 with its devastating economic and human damage, 500 years of white supremacy and racial violence, and widespread industrial contamination with the real possibility of ecosystem collapse. My work as a community activist and organizer, as a co-founder of a community cooperatively owned bookstore, and as a progressive legislator and policymaker for 13 years, gives me the hands-on experience necessary on day one to fight for those who have lost their jobs, their health care, 
and the food on their tables. My name is Marcia Rummel, and I am running for the 76th Assembly District. Thank you, Alder. Um, next for opening remarks, we have Mrs. Driscoll. Um, please feel free to go ahead. Thank you, and thank you so much to the CAP Times for providing this great opportunity tonight. I'm so excited to be here with you all. I'm Heather Driscoll, and I was motivated to run because I see a real need for immediate action on climate change, clean water, affordable healthcare for everyone, gun violence prevention, and racial and gender equity. I've been active on these fights for years, and this has shaped who I am. People I love died due to lack of adequate or affordable healthcare. My dad died from gun suicide when I was two and a half years old due to a mental health crisis and easy access to firearms. And my aunt died from hemorrhaging from a miscarriage without health insurance. I know that future tragedies, like what happened in my family, could be prevented with better state legislation. Healthcare, including mental health and reproductive healthcare, is a human right, and I will fight to ensure access for all. Over the last several years, I've been a leader in my community, working in the Capitol, with the school board, with my neighborhood association, with the city council, and with advocacy groups on environmental and gun violence prevention issues. I've used my own personal story to advocate for access to healthcare and for survivors of sexual assault. I've been appointed to two city committees, including the Sustainable Madison Committee, which I currently serve on, and I helped the school board pass the 100% Renewable Energy Resolution for MMSD. I've worked to make my neighborhood association more inclusive as co-chair of SASE's Equity and Inclusion Committee. As legislative lead for Moms Men Action and through my work in Representative Chris Taylor's office, helping lead efforts for the Wisconsin Coalition for Gun Safety, I have fought for background checks on every gun purchase and extreme risk protection orders. I've shown up to take a strong stance against the F-35s and have used my voice to advocate for investing in youth rather than policing them in schools. We need a strong progressive champion for this district, and I have the experience and passion to be that elected leader. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ms. Vandermulen, you're next. Thank you. I'm running because I, am, I have the experience and the, and the knowledge to lead the, lead the assembly from day one. I have worked in education. This is my second term in the Madison School Board and I'm the only attorney running for office. I'm running because I want to give a voice to the voiceless, to remove revenue caps that, that, um, that squander the opportunities for our schools, to remove police, to work on police violence, to change minds and hearts. But the main reason I'm running is because I'm an advocate. As an individual who is autistic, I opened my law firm 16 years ago. The reason I opened it was because no one would hire an autistic attorney. They thought we were incapable for opening the job. Well, I've made a profit every year I've been open and I've managed to be an excellent juvenile and mental health attorney. I will do the same in the assembly. I'm fighting for public education, not private, not voucher, but public education that is equitable using culturally responsive materials. I'm fighting for a criminal justice system that is not broken, that expunges nonviolent drug convictions, that legalizes marijuana, and that makes sure 
that people have the right to an attorney in both the criminal and the civil system. And I'm fighting to increase disability awareness in the state of Wisconsin and to get rid of the subminimum wage since no individual should be paid four cents an hour. I ask for your vote on August 11th. Thank you so much. Mr. Craddock Williams, we're turning it over to you. You have two minutes. Well, thank you to the Cap Times for hosting this forum and thank you to everyone for logging in. My name is Tyrone Craddock Williams and I'm running to be your next state representative. Uh, while I was born on the south side of Chicago in the Inglewood neighborhood, uh, this district has been my home since I moved here when I was 14 years old to start the freshman year of my high school. And I'm a proud product of Madison East High School and Edgewood College. And I have been living, working, and serving in this very district ever since, ever since and choosing to purchase my first home in the heart of this district five years ago. Uh, my parents are proud educators in the public schools here in Madison. And I continue to follow in their footsteps by giving back through public service to the very community and neighborhoods that raised me right here in Madison. And my mission in life is to provide opportunities for my community especially for those who come from similar backgrounds as myself, so they can reach successes and milestones far beyond what I had at their stage in life. And I am the only candidate on this platform who can truly say they're working in direct contact with the communities who are most underlooked and, and, over, and underserved right here in the district. And I choose to do that through financial literacy. I own a financial education company, working in partnership with the school district, um, just as far back as this last school year, being a mentor uh, to uh, students who come from similar backgrounds as myself, being a workforce development expert, and serving my community as a police officer, again, in the very neighborhoods that I grew up in, working with people who are my neighbors, my, my teammates, my classmates, and my friends and family. And I'm angry, and I've been angry for a long time. And for far too long, I've witnessed and lived through the vicious cycle that our systems at play are having on our communities in terms of poverty, affordable housing, lack of access to healthcare and preventative care and reproductive care, and lack of opportunities for healthy life choices through healthy food options. Thank you, Mr. Craddock-Williams. I'm sorry, but that's time. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll get back to you um, later on for individual questions. You can finish up those thoughts. Lastly, we're going to head to Ms. Marsh for her last opening statement. Go ahead, please. Great. Thank you, Brianna, Chris, and the Cap Times for hosting this event. My name is Allie Marsh. I know many of you watching might not know who I am. I'm not part of the political establishment here, nor am I part of the business scene here. In fact, I spent most of my career in Washington, D.C., working in international education. But Madison is my home. I've been back for the past few years, and most recently was working as a communications specialist for the state government. I also taught at Madison College. This is where I grew up, and this is the community I want to serve. And I could not be more excited to be running to represent one of the most progressive, politically active communities in our state. Madison residents, 76 district residents, want to be at the forefront of progressive change. We want healthcare to be treated as a human right. We want to improve mental health of our residents, which is at the heart of my campaign as someone who lives with anxiety and depression and want to destigmatize mental health. 
Now, to accomplish this, whoever wins this race, the reality is we're going to have to find a way to effectively legislate while being in the minority party. Some will say we can't work with the other side. I refuse to accept that. We can't wait for the next election. We need our government to work for the people now as we navigate this economic and public health crisis. I am running to be that lawmaker, to work for the people, not the political party. With more than 10 years of experience in communications and working with senior government officials under both administrations, I believe I am best equipped to take on this challenge and to effectively raise your voice at the state capitol. Thank you. Thank you all. Now we'll move on to some individual questions. Just as a reminder, candidates will have two minutes to answer, and after that, any contender can choose to jump in with a response of up to one minute. Many of these questions are inspired by the responses we've gotten so far to our people's agenda. That effort, as I'm sure many of you have heard me talk about already, aims to help guide the stories we cover during this election cycle and beyond based on reader and community input. The first question goes to Ms. Hong. Ms. Hong, you have told me that as a small restaurant owner whose livelihood is jeopardized by, by the current COVID-19 crisis, it's especially important that you get a seat, a seat at the table when finding solutions to the pandemic and offering aid. How would you evaluate state lawmakers and Governor Tony Evers' administration's response to the virus so far, and what more, if anything, should they be doing to aid small businesses? Thank you for the question, Brianna. Uh, unfortunately, Governor Evers' administration and the policies that he wanted to enact in response to this uh, pandemic uh, were met with uh, swift challenges and um, unfortunately uh, legal action from corrupt, power-hungry GOP leaders. So the action that was put forth was not swift enough and unfortunately hurt small businesses, put people at lives at risk and it's resulted in hundreds and thousands of people unable to work, uh, businesses unable or not knowing if they're going to survive, and health, our public health is at risk. And the systemic injustices that we have been talking about for the past couple of months have just been exacerbated. So the response has been timid and it was not swift. And this lack of statewide inaction has made it more difficult for businesses to operate. You're going to see local economies collapse. We're already seeing uh, a health crisis just continue to expand. So what we need to do instead now is really work on collective action, collective swift community action from local leaders. Uh, we're seeing people share resources amongst different sectors between the nonprofit, uh, the for-profit, and uh, the um, business sector. Um, for us, we're looking at deciding on uh, having to see, trying to prevent our our uh, workers from having to choose between their livelihoods and their health and, and going to going to work. Um, it's, completely it's completely unacceptable. And unfortunately, GOP leadership continues to hinder and put uh, the health and risk of all of Wisconsinites um, at serious, uh, in a serious situation. So what I propose really is that everyone continue to mask up, that everyone continue to care about the struggles of your neighbors, and that and there will be no economic recovery until we can put and suppress this pandemic first. Thank you so much. Um, at this point then, candidates have the opportunity to jump in and talk about the topic that we discussed um, for up to one minute. Seeing no hands, we will move on to the next question, which is for Alder Rummel. Um, Alder Rummel, you have talked to me about your years of experience proposing legislation and passing local budget. 
If you are elected, you'd be seated as the next budget is being written. What should state officials be prioritizing as they make what will likely be tough spending decisions during that process? And would you support raising taxes or fees to cover any of the gaps? Thank you for the question. I think it's a fundamental one that faces us. How are we gonna pay for taking care of our residents during this pandemic? I think we need to look at our tax system and, and advocate for a progressive tax system. If more than, if we focus on the top 10% paying more than they're paying now, we could afford a lot more programs and, and uh, assistance to small businesses, workers who are upside down and, and all the other things that we need to do. I, th I would, um, I think we need to make sure that, that we take care of essential workers. So I would argue for paid sick leave, that we need to make sure that they are safe when they go out to work because we rely on them. I think we need to make sure they have personal protective equipment and their voices are heard in the workplace. We need to push on the feds to extend additional unemployment benefits. And we also make, need to make sure they cover undocumented workers who pay into the unemployment system but don't get any benefits. I think we need to create a state system to, to contribute so we can take care of undocumented immigrants. We need to work on childcare because whether you have the privilege of working at home or you need to go out and work at your job, someone needs to help take care of your kids. And how are we gonna help do that when we've underinvested in our uh, childcare programs and in our educational system. Um, on the, I would look at certain uh, budget items. You know, I work at the Department of Revenue, and I see things like uh, the manufacturing ag and manufacturing tax credit, which is basically a giveaway that we can't afford right now. I would look at legalizing marijuana. That's something that can pay for um, re reparations for some of the problems that we face, and well as funding education. And I would also look at changing our TIF law and other kinds of things that we can do to raise more money. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I saw Ms. Hong's hand first. If you want to start, you have one minute to jump in. Uh, I just wanted to mention that I think we also need to prioritize a living wage, which can be a really effective response to the cost of living and income inequality. Income inequality. Uh, policies such as a fair $15 minimum wage, included labor contracts for workers, affordable health care, tax relief for small businesses who take care of their workers with proper metrics. This can all benefit raising the purchasing power of workers, compressing wage inequality, and provide significant debt relief for the future. Uh, this would have both immediate uh, immediate effects as well as look at long-term sustainable uh, strength for our economy. Implementing the higher minimum wage will also raise income taxes so, stat so states have more money for planning and can transfer this money to local municipalities. So most local municipalities have flexibility in spending uh, for the public goods and services that we will desperately need post-COVID. Thank you. Um, other hands, let's see. I think I saw um, Ms. Marsh's prior, so I'll, I'll call on you first and then we'll go to Ms. Vander Muehling and Mr. Credick-Williams. Ms. Marsh, go ahead. You have one minute. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so the one thing that I wanted to add to this too was looking at our sales tax of online purchases. So right now online purchases are booming, right? Because we're staying home, we're trying to stay safe. But in Wisconsin, the 5% sales taxes on these purchases, because of a law that was passed years ago, it can only be used for income tax cuts 
when in other states, they're able to take advantage of this booming industry and use that sales tax to help with the state budget and help with funding resources and other areas where, the, where it's really needed at this point. So that's just one thing that I wanted to add of a, uh, potentially an opportunity uh, for our state to, to address this. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Ms. Vandermeulen, you're next um, and you have one minute on the clock. Um, I would also add that we need to get rid of the uh, sub-minimum wage of paying four cents an hour to the disabled. Not only is it insulting, it's fiscally irresponsible. Additionally, we are the only state in the country that does not give pandemic benefits to the disabled. It is the only state due to uh, the current Republican administration that does not provide that. That means if you are disabled and manage to hold the job and work hard, you are literally being punished for a condition that you have no control over. And I think that's the first thing I would handle. Thank you. Thank you, so. Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Craddock-Williams, did you still want to go? You have a minute, if you do. Yes. Um, we have to get creative in finding opportunities to make money for our state. And legalizing marijuana is that way to do it. The state of Colorado has made $300 million off the taxes and fees alone from legalized marijuana. Wisconsin continues to miss out on opportunity costs. Uh, here, uh, other states are benefiting. Uh, and also, we need to get away from $15 an hour. We're gonna end up in the same state as we were with our 725. We need to implement a term limit for minimum wage that coincides with the state Senate's terms so we can politicize um, our minimum wage and continue to hold our elected officials accountable in terms of what they choose to say in terms of what our citizens should be making for a fair wage. We can't allow them to continue to pass over the minimum wage like they do every year in every budget cycle. That's unacceptable and we need to push for the quality of life for our people. Thank you so much. Um, seeing no other hands, that means in this situation we'll go back to Alder Rummel and you have 30 seconds to kind of recap or add anything else that you didn't get a chance to. Thanks to everyone for the comments. I would also add that we're in a federal world that has diminished giving aid to states. So we have less money from block grants and other grants for transportation that we need and we use in the past to help build, you know, say a bus rap rapid transit system or provided services for homeowners and renters. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, the next question goes to Ms. Driscoll. Ms. Gris Ms. Driscoll, some of your top issues include efforts to curb gun violence by bolstering background check requirements, instituting a red flag law in which family members or police would be asked, would be able to ask a court to take firearms from an individual considered dangerous. Governor Tony Evers just discussion wanted the legislature to act on these issues, but Republican leadership gaveled in and gaveled out without acting. How do you think the state can make progress on this hyperpartisan issue under divided government? Thank you for that really important question. Uh, when we look across the state, there's been polls and the polls have shown that 80% of the state agrees with an extreme risk protection order, which would remove guns in a situation where somebody is a danger to themselves or to others. And 80% of the state also believes that we should have background checks on every gun purchase. So this isn't a partisan issue. Um, there's broad support across the political spectrum 
And when I was legislative lead for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, I had the opportunity to meet with many legislators and talk to them about these bills. And several of those legislators were Republicans. And the way I, I talked about it and I framed it was in a way that connected with them and their constituents. Uh, right now in Wisconsin, there's an epidemic of suicides across the state. In uh, nationwide, about um, two thirds of gun deaths are from suicide. But here in Wisconsin, it is about 71% of gun deaths are suicides. So when I met with legislators, I talked about the fact that my dad is a fifth generation farmer. He was a fifth generation farmer and he was struggling with depression and died from suicide and that if guns hadn't been accessible in that situation, I truly believe he would be here today. Uh, and that really connected with some of the legislators because many of them represent uh, farmers and some, many of them are also farmers themselves. And my, in addition to the depression my dad was dealing with, it was also planting season, which is a stressful period for farmers. Um, so I talk about it in ways that I can frame it to try to make progress. Right now the Republican leadership doesn't want to take action, but we need to continue to build allies and continue to put pressure so the Republicans that are in the legislature can put pressure on their leadership. And I also reached out across the state and mobilized people to show up at their public hearing, hearing so their Republican legislators could hear their voices. Thank you. Thank you. Um, would anyone like to comment on that issue? Seeing no hands, I'm going to move on to the next question. Oh, Alder Rommel, sorry about that. I almost missed you. Feel free to go ahead and take one minute. Thank you. Thank you, Heather, for your work. In addition, I would, I, as an alder, I've been able to address violence um, through a public health lens. I think we need to implement programs that interrupt violence and provide mentoring to people uh, from street outworkers who live the life and provide peer mentoring and positive support to high-risk persons. We need to find programs to help um, reduce easy access to guns and increase regulations for screening and initiatives. And so I think we, you know, a lot of the stuff we've been seeing now is response to police gun use. And so I've been working for over five years on um, approaches to police accountability and, and changing how we, they use use of force. Thank you. Thank you, Alder. Um, seeing no other hands, we're gonna go back to you, Ms. Driscoll. If you wanna take 30 seconds to uh, elaborate more on this issue, please feel free. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely agree with seeing gun violence as a public health epidemic. And there are also you know, local organizations like Focused Interruption Coalition, who I've met with that is working on stopping retaliatory shootings that are happening in the city. Um, so that's another issue that uh, needs to be tackled here in Madison. And gun violence is really pervasive, you know, many different forms with police uh, shootings and hate crimes. And those are all issues that I will work to stop in the legislature. Thank you so much. Um, our next question goes to Ms. Vandermeulen. Um, as a member of the Madison School Board, you've talked about championing changes to education funding at the state level. There's been discussions about overhauling the school funding formula for years to make it more equitable. What changes are you seeking to the formula and why? Changes that I am seeking to the education formula are one, we need to get rid of the revenue caps, requiring schools to go to referendum every time they need to 
have any expenditure not only creates a financial burden to our schools, but it also puts a financial burden on our taxpayers. Secondly, the larger schools tend to do better in this formula who, have, who are richer while the smaller schools and the more rural schools lose out. For example, being Palmyra Eagle that almost had to shut down and dissolve the district due to lack of funding with a referendum fail. You move the re revenue cap, that, that doesn't happen. Additionally, my second issue was we need to base it not on our prop, we need to base school revenue not on property taxes, but on income taxes. We need a progressive tax structure, yes, but we also need to make sure that the people who make the most pay the most money, and we're not doing that. And lastly, we need to make sure that aid is equitable, not equal. Giving the same amount per pupil to each school doesn't create equity. It just creates a wider gap between richer and poorer, poorer schools. What you need to do is to look at the budgets of each district. Madison happens to be a large district. Whitewater, where I'm from, happens to be quite a small one. You have to look at the district and what the needs are of the district by giving an across-the-board across the board set amount I feel will only increase the inequity and make situations worse. So those are the ways I would change the funding formula. Additionally, I would end the uh, payments to the voucher schools and use that money and put that in to fund revenue for our public school system. Thank you so much. Seeing no hands um, regarding K-12 funding, I We'll move on. Uh, Mr. Credit Williams, this next question is for you. Um, you have a multi-point plan out for recruiting and supporting officers of color, as well as overhauling policing practices that includes incorporating implicit bias training in recruit academies, expanding restorative justice initiatives, requiring body cameras be worn, and, and much more. You have specifically called for these changes in Dane County, but are these proposals that could apply statewide? And did your personal experience as a Madison police officer help inspire these recommendations? My personal experience as a black male inspired these, inspired these uh, policies that I'm pushing for. Um, growing up in Dane County, one of the statistically worst counties to raise a black child in the nation, as well as being a black police officer, I understand both sides of the spectrum in terms of what's needed for police reform. And seeing our the outcomes and what we've seen with George Floyd and other instances around the country throughout the years is maddening, it's upsetting, and it shows that the system is based on racism and needs to change. And in my article in the Capital Times, I've highlighted all those policies, and in my blog on my website, I've went into a deeper uh, understanding of why these things need to be in place, including more transparency, community oversight, as well as hiring officers of diverse backgrounds who are like me, who come from the community they serve so they can speak the same language, both literally and figuratively, and bring a connection that's more, that no training can give. These things are comprehensive and needs to be done to make organizational, cultural DNA change in our police departments. And to make it even uh, neater, the, after my article was published, the state of Colorado passed a comprehensive police reform bill. And I'm already in communication with the state representative who pushed that bill and sponsored it. So we can, if I'm elected, we can hit the ground running. I'm doing the work now. So we can hit the ground running on day one to bring extensive comprehensive police reform to the state of Wisconsin now. 
Thank you so much. Um, I saw Ms. Hong's hand first, so I'll go to her. You have one minute. More police training won't work. Reforming the current system isn't the answer. We need to be dismantling the current system. Police officers enforce the law with state-sanctioned violence and then get excused for violating people's rights because they aren't expected to know the law. Minneapolis police spent nearly $5 million implementing trainings, increasing diversity, repairing to strengthen trade relationships between cops and communities. It didn't work. We have to dismantle police unions and qualified immunity and start funding social services that work with domestic abuse cases, family services, and public education. Our state needs to ensure resolutions and accountability boards where the decision-making power is in the hands of representatives of those communities. And each city should have local control of how they dismantle their police systems to rebuild new community control systems rooted in preventative care and reducing harm. Defund the police protect black lives and build a care community. This is what we need. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Driscoll, I think I saw your hand next. Then we'll go to Alder Rummel and Ms. Vandermulen. Yeah, I wanna, oh, I appreciate that the, uh, about what uh, Tyrone was saying with police reforms, but I think we do need to even go further and think about the way that we're spending our money um, in situations where somebody's having a mental health crisis and ask ourselves, you know, are police really the best per people to be responding in those situations? And in my experience, it's not the case. Uh, there are programs that exist that are successful already happening in our country. In Eugene, Oregon, there's a program called CAHOOTS, and they receive 24,000 calls a year. And in less than 1% of those calls have they had to call for police backup. Um, and what they do is they send trained professionals who are trained in de-escalation, who carry no weapons and are able to handle the situation non-violently. And that's something that I would like to see more funding go towards, and I'm glad that Dane County is currently looking at that. Thank you. Thank you. Alder Rummel, we'll go to you next. Uh, you have one minute. Thank you. I'm the only candidate here, maybe besides the practitioner, who's been working on police accountability. So and like many of you, all of us have been in the streets marching to affirm Black Lives Matter and defend the right to live without disrespect, detention, disenfranchisement, or death. I think that's a fundamental statement we, I hope we would all agree with. And as an alder, I've been a leader on this issue. I chaired the president's work group on police and community relations in response to the officer-involved shooting of Tony Robinson in my district. We came up with recommendations about safeguarding emotionally disturbed people, ensuring officer well-being, and changing our use of force. I think that if I elected to the assembly, I would work to, to look at the, the role of the district attorney um, and um, ask them not to be the ones to investigate officer-involved shootings. And I agree with the last speaker that we need a mental health uh, first responders team. And I agree that we need to look at prison abolition as the model for change. Thank you. Ms. Vandermulen, we'll go to you next. Yes. Um, I have 16 years in the criminal justice system as a defense attorney. I've seen where it goes bad. I had a plan that had been featured in Channel 3 News briefly, but my main thing is we need to revoke state funding and state grant funding for those who use military weapons on our citizens. There's absolutely no use to turn actual military weapons on our own people. Secondly, we need the community boards to have teeth and to actually have action and ability to make those changes. And I wanna shift state funding for localities so that way emergency services can be handled. 
But most importantly, I want to get rid of Lincoln Hills and the juvenile prisons because I feel it's creating the school to prison pipeline and worsening it. But I'm the only one who's actually had to vote. Other than Elder Rommel, I'm the only other one who's had to vote on removing the police from school. And I was honored to be on a board that did so and always has voted against police and schools on my term in the Madison School Board. Thank you. Thank you. Um, seeing no other hands, we will go back to Mr. Craddock Williams. You have 30 seconds. In my article, I highlighted the great need to end qualified immunities to include in community members who are most, not just anyone, who are most impacted by police calls of service, use of force, to have real decision-making powers in terms of what happens in their departments in their communities. We have to have an equitable approach by having those people included in those conversations and giving them power. That's the most important thing that needs to go on right now. And if we have more time, I can get into mental health with police and I hope we come back around to it. We're actually talking about mental health, health access next, so I hope you jump in. Um, this question goes to Ms. Marsh. Um, you have advocated for greater access to mental health care and treatment services. What barriers currently exist in Wisconsin that state lawmakers should look to address so more individuals can access the care and services they need? Well, yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate this question because one of the biggest issues is nearly half of Wisconsin adults who need mental health treatment do not have do not receive the treatment that they need. And this goes hand in hand to what we were just talking about with policing reform. I'm in full support of defunding the police and reallocating these funds to mental health, to the community, right? And so when we're speaking specifically about the barriers, because that's tied to, to the barriers of access to care. So one of the biggest issues is mental health. We have a huge provider shortage in our state across the board. So the CAHOOTS um, program was mentioned, right, where we have mental health professionals showing up um, to places uh, first um, in front of law enforcement, but we actually have a shortage of crisis intervention specialists to do that work. So what we need to do as we pull more funding into these areas is address this huge provider work, uh, uh, work workforce shortage. And the way that I see that being done is one, we need to recruit and retain mental health professionals. Um, and we also need to diversify the workforce. So one of the biggest issues is that the majority of mental health professionals are white and that needs to change as well. So there needs to be innovative uh, strategies. Peer support specialists is a route to do that. Um, another area of uh, barriers to access right now where we have a really big opportunity is many people are receiving treatment online via the via what we're doing here also through their phone because a lot of people are smartphone dependent so we need to make sure that that care can continue um, and expand telehealth and make sure that the providers providing counseling can re be reimbursed for their services because that's huge because then people can gain access immediately uh, to that type of counseling so those are just a couple of areas Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Craddock Williams, let's just jump to you next um, so you can finish up your thoughts and address anything else on the mental health issue. Yeah, so no one's hidden the actual underlying issue here and that's the access to badger care and how mental health is not treated on parity with physical illness. And from my experience being the only candidate to be a practitioner in the field in these instances, when people get to the hospital, 
they are either net qualified or can't afford the comprehensive case management services that's available to them through BadgerCare, and the system forces them to wait until their health deteriorates to a level that they become a danger to themselves or another. And by that time that they qualify for these services, the damage is already done. Their housing, their employment, their physical health, their family life, their entire quality of life is suffering. And when they get the help they finally need, they're in a deficit. Not to mention the entire process of finishing the qualification, which means you're strapped up in the back of a police car, shackled, sent an hour and a half up to Winnebago County, and you're traumatized, you're criminalized, you are experiencing and you're suffering trauma. That's the underlying issue, and that's what we need to address. Thank you. Um, Ms. Vandermeulen, we'll go to you next. As an individual who's been on Medicare and on Medicaid, growing up at, due to disability, I understand the provider shortage. I also understand the financial shortage. I have supplemental insurance because my father's uh, point guard from his basketball team is an insurance salesman and vouched for me. It's the only reason I have it, because before Obamacare passed, it was an instant denial. I've gone through that, but I've also found out that we need to take the Medicare expansion. That is the most important thing. Second thing we need to put juvenile and adult mental health services back in the community. Mr. Craddock Williams is 100% right. Taking a person who has a mental health crisis an hour and a half away in a squad car is absolutely unacceptable and will lead to further problems. Additionally, due to COVID, we will actually spread the disease worse if in an institutionalized setting. We have to find better ways and telemedicine as Ali as Ali stated, would be an excellent way to do so. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ms. Driscoll, I believe I saw your hand next. Did you still want to go? Yeah, thank you. Um, one thing I'd like to add to that, um, I would like to see create is a mental, more mental health crisis restoration centers. Um, oh, yeah. That's something that <laughs> uh, two years ago um, when the vote was up, you know, for the Dane County Jail, I went and registered my opposition to spending money on the Dane County Jail. What I think would have been a better use of the funds is creating a mental health crisis restoration center. Um, some of the challenges that I've heard from that police officers are experiencing and the sheriff is experiencing is um, when people are having a mental health crisis, there's nowhere for them to go. And so we need more resources allocated for that and we need more mental health beds available and a mental health re re crisis restoration center would be a great solution. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Hong, I believe I saw your hand. I think you're next. Thanks, Brianna. Um, I would say there's an even bigger question not being asked here and a bigger crisis to recognize and, and that we have a crisis of connection. We have a crisis of a culture that stigmatizes mental health. We have a crisis that people are not feeling purposeful, that people don't um, feel like their presence in the community means something. And these are ways, this type of problem, these types of questions, we can address through different social services and shared resources within the community. We can build triage centers so people can actually start identifying what their mental health need might be. We can start uh, sharing and having more conversations and start uh, training 
find people and peer support. We can build uh, and, and invest in mobile mental health units so that the mental health services become more accessible to people. So I think really it's about a crisis of connection and, and seeing, uh, talking about shifting the culture, destigmatizing mental health, and not just anxiety and depression, but even, even larger issues um, surrounding uh, bipolar disease, folks who are, are in much, much more need of care. I think it's about addressing a crisis of connection and not just access to badger care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, did I see any other hands? Alder Rommel, go ahead, please. Thank you. Uh, I think everyone's made some really important statements. Access to mental health care services are incredibly important, especially during this time of COVID. So that makes telehealth and internet accessibility an even more important element of what we need to work on. We need to make sure that everyone can get the health care they need wherever they live in the state. Thanks. Thank you. Seeing no other hands, we are going to go back to Ms. Marsh. Uh, feel free to take 30 seconds to wrap up your thoughts here. 30 seconds. All right, I will do my best. The one thing I want to note really quickly that I just heard about going beyond just anxiety and depression with mental health conditions is we can't underestimate any type of mental health condition because oftentimes the pain is invisible. We don't know how severe it is. For, for me, at times in my life, it's absolutely been devastating. And so I just wanna, wanna mention that. And then in addition to everything that was mentioned, expanding um, Medicaid, uh, doing all of these intervention services, in order to get that done, we need bipartisan support. And I know I'm out of time here, but that's why I go back to my opening statement with the need to work with the other side here. So thank you. Thank you. Um, for our last question of this category, we're going to Mr. Bradison. Um, you have talked about the importance of funding for K-12 and the UW system, and there are many UW-Madison students in this district. In the last couple of years especially, we've seen some openness towards ending the tuition freeze. Um, would you support lifting it completely in the next budget cycle? Would you like to see increases kept in some way, such as tied to the rate of inflation? Where do you stand on that issue? Um, I would like to see the tuition capped at the rate of inflation. Um, the University of Wisconsin has fallen out of the top five research universities in the United States, and that's a sad thing to see. For too long, the Republicans have fought to make the university the enemy, using it as a wedge to divide the state. We have the Wisconsin idea though, though they tried to get rid of that. Um, the University of Wisconsin is there to help all the citizens of Wisconsin, and I believe that they do that. We need to climb back to the top, and it's harder to to climb back to the top and to stay on top. The UW is the economic engine of the state and we need to improve. By increasing the tuition, we'll be able to have more funds to afford to, or to, to bring the university back up to where it was. Perhaps for lower income people, we should be looking at doing more in the way of scholarships. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, Ms. Vandermeulen, feel free to weigh in. Um, our, our schools and our university are our gem of our state. I graduated twice from UW-Madison, but my family lived and worked at UW-Whitewater. We have to treat two-year campuses and four-year campuses outside of Madison the same. We have to make sure that tuition is affordable. We're not doing that and providing enough services 
for our students. And we need to put financial protections that allow student loan forgiveness, allow students to be able to afford tuition and make tuition affordable based on the income the student has, not on the parent's income. Not everyone has a relationship with their parents. Not every parent can afford to give to their child in the education system. And to base our financial aid on parental income, I believe is incredibly short-sighted. So I would keep tuition frozen, if not lowered, to help as many people as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Any other hands? Seeing none, we're gonna go back to you, Mr. Bradison, if you wanna take 30 seconds to elaborate more on this topic. Sure. Um, and I do agree that we do have to watch out for lower income individuals. However, there are plenty of people that can afford to pay more to go to school here that live in state. I do think that we, the university needs more money. That is one way that we can get the university more money. Um, and uh, I lost my thought. Um, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. We're going to move on now to a lightning round. So it's a, a sort of a short, lighthearted series where we'll give listeners a sense of what each of you are like just beyond, beyond just policy. Um, I want to caution you not to think too long on these answers and be quick in your responses. Miss um, Driscoll, we'll start with you. Tell us about the hobbies you've picked up, um, if you've picked up any new ones during the COVID-19 pandemic. And if so, what are they? Uh, spending time on the deck with a kiddie pool with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really fun. Uh, Ms. Vandermeulen, we'll go, we'll go to you next. Any new hobbies during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, I rediscovered um, my love of needlepoint and I've been doing it quite a bit along with crossword puzzles and reading a good book. That sounds fun. I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks myself. Mr. Credit Williams, we're going to you next. What hobbies have you picked up, if any, that are new during this time? I'm trying my best imitation of Bob the Builder with some home remodeling. <laughs> Good for you. You'll have to send us pictures, I think. We'd really appreciate that. Um, Ms. Marsh, uh, what about you? Any new hobbies? Um, not a new hobby, but picking it back up again, uh, playing basketball, just going down to Albert Garden and shooting some hoops. It's always been very therapeutic. Mm. Good for you. Uh, Mr. Bradison, what about you? I've taken up running for public office. Um, and additionally, I've been working on my guitar, which I've taken, which I started a few years ago, but um, it's not that easy. <laughs> I'm sure you found that you remember more than you thought you would, though. Miss <laughs> um, Hall, what about you? Any new hobbies during this time? Um, you know, it's been difficult to find time, but I will say I'm very excited for the Milwaukee Bucks scrimmage tomorrow and watching basketball again. So that will be another hobby I'll be picking up. Mm -hmm. Alda Rommel, what about you? Any hobbies during this time? No, if it's hobbies, because like others, I don't have a lot of time, but I have been catching up and connecting with people I haven't talked to in a while to see how they're doing during COVID. Plus, I'm calling them for money. <laughs> it's a great way to connect with people again. <laughs> we have one more lightning round question, and um, we're going to start with Ms. Vandermeuling for this one. Um, we're all on social media. And I think all of us here have a Twitter account. Um, what's the best account that you follow on Twitter or other social media platforms? Um, Mr. Andrew Cor 
Corburn. He has two dogs, Olive and Mabel, and he does sport. He's a rugby sportscaster from Scotland. He does uh, sportscasting of his dogs um, eating food, racing each other, and stealing toys. I personally like his performance review of both of his dogs. I think he's going to find himself with a few more followers from Madison. Um, Mr. Craddock Williams, you're next. What's your favorite Twitter or social media account to follow? I love following uh, the new video game Snapchats just to see everything that's coming out that I will never pay for because I just don't have the time, but I could wish. <laughs> Ms. Marsh, what about you? Favorite Twitter or social media account? This is actually not going to be a, this is going to be a boring answer. I actually am very inactive on, on all the accounts. I'm active with the campaign, but as far as following, I actually try to stay off. So. Good for you. We, all of us should be like you, actually. So, <laughs> um, Mr. Bradison, what about you? Any fun Twitter or social media accounts that you follow? I actually don't follow any Twitter or accounts or anything like that either. Um, since I do have this campaign, I have started some things and I find all that people do is comment on my spelling and punctuation and I don't find it um, encouraging to myself, so I don't do it. I understand. Um, Ms. Hong, what about you? Twitter or social media accounts that you follow? Uh, lately, there's been some fire tweets coming from Angry Asian Man, so I highly recommend people check him out. Uh, he's got some fun, um, informative things to say. Thanks for that recommendation. Alder Rommel, what about you? Um, I, I lurk and follow and act on Facebook a lot, and there are a lot of interesting pages like the Community Resource Team and various social justice groups in Madison, and I always check in on their various pages, Dane County helping each other, just so I know what's going on. That's great. Um, Ms. Driscoll, last but not least, any fun social media or Twitter accounts that you follow? Uh, yeah, well, I've really been enjoying Freedom Inc., um, all of the coverage that they've had about what's happening on racial justice issues and the political education um, sessions that they've been doing. That's great. Um, we're going to jump into more serious topics now, but thanks for all um, engaging in this lighthearted discussion. I really appreciate it. Before we kind of dive into those individual questions, I just want to give you a reminder of where we all stand with the, the, the limited interruptions that we've given you. So you were all capped at four when we initially started. Mr. Bradison, you still have all four to go, so feel free to use them in this section. Uh, Ms. Driscoll, you have two left. Ms. Hong, you have one left. Uh, Ms. Marsh, you have three left. Ms. Vandermeulen, you have zero left. Uh, if someone wants to give you some of theirs, feel free to take them. <laughs> um, Alder Rumble, you have one left. And Mr. Credit Williams, you have two left. Um, and now we will transition to the individual questions. Again, some of these are inspired by comments and feedback we've gotten to our people's agenda. So you'll see a variety of issues, again, represented here. Um, and Mr. Craddock Williams, actually, you'll start us off. Um, reminder for these that you'll have two minutes to answer and that any candidate can jump in with that one minute response. Um, so Mr. Craddock Williams, you've worked at boosting financial literacy among young people and within communities of color. One of your biggest priorities should you win election is bolstering economic development. What do you think of the state's current economic development efforts and how would you seek to expand them should you get elected? Mm -hmm. COVID-19 has decimated our economy nationwide, especially in Wisconsin. So like I said earlier, we have to get creative with finding opportunities to bring assets to our community. And one thing that I have is a background in workforce development, a background in being a financial literacy expert. And I've identified that 
the state of Wisconsin has a broadband expansion plan uh, for set through 2025 to bring internet services statewide. Someone has to do that job. And just this past March, the state has passed off $24 million to only 42 organizations to do this work. That's a lot of money for not a lot of people. And we need to get our mass and resources there. There's another $24 million set for September to be dispersed. And I have uh, gone out and seen some of the work that's being done here in Madison for that very same internet broadband expansion. And uh, those people are not from here. They, these companies are hiring people from around the state, putting them up, up in hotels to do work into our communities in our city. Those should be Madison resources. Those should be our people. Those should be our youth, our women of color, and our people of color into these spaces, getting that money and bringing it back to our communities. As uh, someone who wants to be in the Capitol, with that mindset to identify opportunities that we could use now, it's crucial that we do that, and it's crucial that we have people with that skill set to be advocates and build bridges for those people who are most often traditionally underserved in our communities. We cannot continue to have surface level reforms where our communities of color and low income communities continue to walk away with little to nothing of substance afterwards. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Um, seeing, oh, I see Mr. Bradison's hand. Feel free to go ahead and take one minute to respond. Thanks. We need to promote entrepreneurs and good paying jobs. The state should expand on high tech and clean manufacturing base. Incentives from the state should be used wisely and we should not overpay like we did with Foxconn offering four times as much as the next highest bidder. The state should provide incentives based on the number of good paying jobs it will produce, not on how politically connected the owners are. We need a diversified economy and a diversified workforce that works for everyone. And there's a motorcycle accident right in front of my house. It's like crazy. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Bradison. Um, Ms. Marsh, yes, feel free to go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the one thing I want to say is we have to, of course, have immediate economic recovery due to the COVID-19 crisis. And I'd also like to challenge, too, and this is the type of lawmaking I would like to do as well, is for us to also think long-term, the long-term implications from the next five, 10 years from now. What, is, what are things going to look like? Because we need to plan for the future. And the reality is we need to continue to ensure everybody's basic needs are met. As the crisis with COVID-19, we're having to be more separated from each other and rely on technology more to even do our jobs. And so there's a fear with the COVID-19 crisis that it's gonna um, uh, excel automation and AI into the workforce. This was always a concern. So we need to also address this. Um, and one way I think we need to at least look into these programs is starting to talk about universal basic income. So I'm in full support of a living wage, but also looking at long-term solutions uh, to economic recovery. So thank you. Thank you. Alder Rommel, I believe I saw your hand. Feel free to take a minute. And also, this is your last, um, your last response. I know, I thought about it. So I've had a lot of experience with Alder um, spearheading economic redevelopment in the East Rail Corridor on East Washington and leverage state resources like Brownfield Grants, TIF, um, and, and land. We've had a land banking program, which I would like to um, promote more of at the state level. I've also worked at um, 
the public market and created programs for and opportunities for women and people of color owned local food businesses to open in the in the public market. And I think these are ways we can address racial justice and which is an important part of what we need to do in the future. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Paul, go ahead. This is also your last one, just so you know. Thanks, Brianna. Um, I think a pretty uh, no-brainer solution to this as well is pushing a new Green New Deal. Um, it's a way to dramatically transform the infrastructure of our economy. We can build wealth in marginalized communities impacted by redlining and those who are burdened with and have to consume the cost of unchecked pollution. We can implement a carbon tax alongside a tax credit to help Wisconsin meet our goal of having 100% of the power demand in Wisconsin running on clean, renewable, zero emission energy sources without disproportionate affecting our low-income families. We also need to look at our agriculture and investing in our local organic farms. If we support these sustainable farms in our region, we can recognize that these, this, them being a leader in organic farming and us being a leader in, uh, in organic farming in the country, we can input a system of agriculture that continues to support local farms as a way forward out of climate crisis while creating jobs. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, seeing no other hands, we're going to go back to Mr. Craddock Williams if you want to take 30 seconds to, um, to recap. My background in financial education, in every policy that I'm pushing for on my website, you can find everything to build wealth. There, we should be walking away with assets at the end of the day and providing them to our low income and people of color. And we have to do that. It's, it's unacceptable that for this long, our communities are still in food deserts are still lacking access to health care. Uh, in our very community, Darbo neighborhood, in that half mile strip, there are seven payday loan lenders, lenders uh, eight fast food restaurants, but no other quality options for those people. Why is that? Thank you. Uh, Ms. Marsh, we're going to you next with this question. You're one of a few candidates who have emphasized the importance of addressing partisan gridlock in the Capitol. What were your takeaways about overcoming those roadblocks from your role at the State Department of Health Services? And how will you work together with people who have differing viewpoints so issues can be solved? Thank you for this question. So let me just preface this by saying I am a strong progressive Democrat who just happens to wanna to work with the other side. I know those don't always go hand in hand, but this is actually what I've heard from the voters time and time again, that folks are sick of the political gridlock. And to that question, Brianna, you know, it was really, I used to be one of those people that said, we can't do it. And it wasn't until I started working for the state and I came in um, working for the Office of Children's Mental Health, which was an office created with bipartisan support. And in my role, I worked directly with the former lady, former first lady actually on trauma-informed care efforts, which also shops, uh, had much bipartisan buy-in. Now with this, it very much humanized politics for me. And what it showed me was the critical nature of relationship development development or development, sorry, that we have to take that time to get to know folks who adamantly think differently than us, and especially as the minority party within the state assembly. Um, and what I also learned is I believe mental health is an opportunity for bipartisan support. So as a lawmaker going in, that is what I want to certainly champion and work towards. Um, so, you know, again, just to kind of close up the, this, uh, this answer is 
I do believe it can be done. Um, and I think it must be done for the people. Again, we have, we can't handle this gridlock right now because people's lives are at stake. An area where that needs to happen right now is with the statewide mass mandate. Um, you know, we need to see these efforts where both parties come together and protect the Wisconsinites. Um, and I believe, you know, to boost cooperation and also movement on progressive issues, you know, it's going to take a certain type of lawmaker who has the skill set to build those relationships, negotiate, and also communicate effectively with not just other lawmakers, but also with the Wisconsin people as a whole to push us in a more progressive direction. So thank you. And thank you. Um, Mr. Brayson, I believe I saw your hand first. Would you, would you like to take a minute to respond? Yes, I would. Uh, when I was younger, Republicans and Democrats used to fight almost as much as they do now, but they were friends and they would meet after work to socialize. Somewhere along the way, they both started believing in all their rhetoric. I have relatives and many friends who are Republicans, and I can manage to hold a civil conversations about the issues, which is a skill that seems to be in scarce supply these days. Throughout my working career, I have had to deal with people with opposite agendas, and have usually come to a consensus. I know almost none of the Republican legislators personally. Uh, one of my first efforts would be to get acquainted with and hopefully discover some things that we have in common to begin establishing personal relationships. We need to find common ground and communicate with patience and understanding. We need to listen and understand what is behind their reasoning, and we need to recognize the humanity of the other side. Thank you. Mr. Craddock Williams, I believe I saw your hand. Would you still like to go? Mm -hmm. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm already working on cross-state partisan uh, support by working with representatives of Colorado to get the work started now. And I'll, I'll point it out, I'm a black male police officer who's a financial literacy and workforce development expert pushing for intersectional uh, reforms in police, uh, healthcare, uh, and financial wealth building. That is a unicorn. And the GOP won't know what to do about it. And, we can, that, and that also opens up doors and spaces to get in there and, and communicate with the GOP leaders, with people on a relational thing, like with uh, Representative Nygren's uh, long documented history of uh, opioid uh, reform. Uh, I have firsthand experience in that uh, in those efforts and dealing with that firsthand, saving lives, bringing people back to life and seeing the decimation that heroin uh, addiction does and expanding that to other drugs and nonviolent offenses so we can all reduce disparities in our communities. I think that skill set is very important to have in the capital and bringing things at a diverse uh, mindset. Thank you so much. Um, Ms. Driscoll, I believe I saw your hand before. Would you still like to go? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I, um, with you know, the, the terrible gerrymandering that's happening across the state, I know that is the reality that the Republicans are in the majority. And like I mentioned in my previous statement, that I know that I can be an effective leader and um, make change without compromising my progressive values. But I do also think it's necessary that it's very critical, actually, in this seat that whoever is representing this district is leveraging this position to support candidates across the state. Um, it's essentially important that this fall we stop the Republicans from getting a supermajority because then Governor Evers will lose his veto powers um, for the next redistricting around the maps. 
And that's something that I think sets me apart from other candidates. I've done the work of going outside of Madison. I knocked doors in Wausau, in Darlington, in Lodi for the candidates that were in flippable seats in those districts, um, all Democratic candidates. And that's something that I would continue to do as a state representative. Thank you. Thank you. Um, seeing no one else, Ms. Marsh, we're going to go back to you. You have 30 seconds to kind of wrap us up here. Yeah, I mean, just to that last point of needing to go outside of this district. So this is something I had experience with working for the state because we had to do statewide communications plans and we did go outside of the district. And not only that, I was speaking throughout the state on well-being in the digital age and got to know the cities, the different counties, tribes. It's we have to understand that every place in Wisconsin is so different and it's so critical that we understand those needs in order to effectively accomplish the change change we're talking about. And the reality is it's going to take time um, and to do that, but it's worth it, certainly. So thank you. Um, we're, we'll move on to the next question, which is for Mr. Bradison, actually. Um, you have emphasized the importance of implementing a nonpartisan redistricting system, something Ms. Driscoll just referred to. This is an issue that has not been able to gain bipartisan traction in the state legislature. Why is this issue important in spite of that reality, and how do you think such a process could be put in place given the, the resistance? Sure. Uh, both parties have engaged in gerrymandering. I favor a nonpartisan board that exists as exists in other states. It is the only fair way to keep politics out of what should be, be a non-political process. We need fair maps that should respect community boundaries. Districts should be compact. And politicians should not be picking their constituents. And as the data continues to improve, it will only get worse. I also believe the way voting lines are drawn today makes us a divided nation with representatives way on the left and way on the right and no one in the middle. Incumbents are more likely to be challenged by someone on the fringes of their party rather than by the opposite party. Um, voters should be picking their legislators. Their legislators should not be picking their voters. Thank you. Um, seeing no hands, we will move on to the next. Oh, I'm sorry, Ms. Marsh, go ahead. Feel free to take a minute. Sorry, I thought about it and then I... <laughs> didn't raise quick enough. Um, so just building off of that, so yeah, I, I fully believe in um, fair maps equals fair elections or fairer elections. I also wanna add that we need to make voting more accessible. And so I would also push for efforts to have uh, Wisconsin move to a vote by mail system. You know, we wanna make sure that we, we do everything possible against voter suppression. I would also advocate for what's called ranked choice voting, which allows voters to actually rank their, their uh, candidates by preference, and it allows um, a, a, a variety of people, it, it just, it's a more equitable, equitable way to, to vote. And Maine has it right now, and so that's something I would definitely want to raise awareness on as well, so when we talk about this issue. Thank you. Thank you. Um, seeing no other hands, Mr. Bradison, we'll go back to you if you want to take 30 seconds to wrap us up. Sure. Uh, partisan redistricting lets minority voters choose majority of the candidates. In 2018, Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, 45% of the voters elected 64% of the, seater, the seats. Um, finally, people should not have to risk their lives to vote in America um, with this, especially during this pandemic. So, um, and like I said, the voters should not be picking their legislators. The legislators should be choosing their voters. 
Thank you. Um, changing topics, we're going to go to Ms. Hong. You've talked about the importance of making affordable housing more available, and many of many of the other candidates have stressed this as well. What should the state do to create that, and do you have any thoughts on what type of housing expansion should be encouraged in Madison and Dane County, particularly as both continue to grow? Thanks for the question, Brianna. Uh, housing is a basic human right and benefits everyone in the community. We shouldn't have a state where people are forced to choose between having food on the table or a roof over their heads, which is becoming more of a reality for more people across the state. Uh, keeping in mind that safer at home is probably going to be the case for the foreseeable future, we do need to make sure that housing access is guaranteed for all Wisconsinites. Um, we need to reestablish both mortgage and eviction moratoriums across the state, and I would push for a canceling rent, as well as halting utility shutoffs and forgiving late fees into 2021. Um, historically, too many cities across the state, uh, through gentrification and housing discrimination, uh, have been marginalizing communities of color, um, as well as low-income families. You know, I grew up in the most diverse neighborhood in this city, um, in Eagle Heights. And when my family was finally able to purchase a home, um, did I realize that this didn't really exist anywhere outside of Eagle Heights. So in order to reverse some of these devastating events, um, we need to make sure that we invest in affordable housing in amenity-rich areas, and that bills get passed on housing include community review guidelines, and that members of the community are active in the decision-making process. And these are members of the community who understand their neighborhoods, who know that their neighborhoods have resources and talents, and that they should be at the table making these decisions. Uh, we also need to expand the right to counsel. Everyone has a right to represent themselves and challenge the power of abusive landlords um, and then increase and strengthen tenant protections. Um, we have to prohibit uh, prohibit discrimination based on income as well. We don't tax on our ability to pay, so we can't discriminate against an inability to pay either. And again, I believe raising a minimum wage will directly help those who are cost burdened, who don't always have the option of choosing where they should live. Thank you so much. Um, Mr. Bradison, I see your hand. Feel free to take a minute. Thanks. We need affordable housing for people that work here. If you have a job in an area, that job should pay enough to live there. We have a mismatch in the 76th district. We do more housing of all levels of income and without help from the government, the lower income folks will be priced out. We should increase density. This saves land for other uses and reduces the land cost per unit per housing unit. We should expand the use of tax incentives like TIF and tax exempt bonds in order to make housing affordable to more moderate and lower income citizens. We should consider streamlining regulations and reducing impact fees that drive up the cost of housing. Real estate, um, the, the more, uh, we should consider expanding and creating new programs to get lower income and minorities into home ownership. We should promote upgrading our existing housing stock and I would be amiss if I did not address the housing during the pandemic. We must provide assistance to people who have lost their income due to the closures and health issues related to this COVID virus and help for rental and mortgage payments. Housing should be a priority in our state. Thank you, Mr. Bradison. Um, seeing no other hands, we, oh, sorry, Mr. Credit Williams, go ahead. All right. Um, I'm on the board of directors at Commonwealth Development, tackling affordable housing crises. And I've lived in food deserts. I've lived in poverty. I've lived in, with slum lords. I've experienced this, and I continue to work in the neighborhoods. My policies I'm pushing for tenants in contaminated zones, like around the airport right now, need to have a right of first refusal 
for future affordable housing developments to get them out of those areas while we address the environmental concerns with uh, um, forever chemicals. We need to increase our transparency laws. The city of Madison is proposing uh, affordable housing at Oscar Mayer, even though that place is contaminated and the transparency wasn't there. Advocates had to pay their own money for that to figure that out. This should be law. And we also need matched savings accounts, uh, one-to-one ratios to encourage entrepreneurship, to encourage wealth building, business ownership and home ownership for our communities who are in affordable housing. So we are having them walk away with assets and not just managing them uh, into a vicious cycle of poverty. We need comprehensive services for these people in an intersectional approach. Thank you so much. Um, Ms. Hong, it looks like we're back to you. Feel free to take 30 seconds. Thank you. Um, absolutely. Asset building in communities and across neighborhoods, bringing voices and leaders across these neighborhoods to craft policy is how we're going to tackle a lot of these systemic injustices. It's a lot of the policies that have created these inequities in the first place. So I think it's really important that we have uh, policymakers and, and lawmakers uh, who are at the table uh, and have the decision making power uh, to really put equity first. And so I am in full support of continuing to work with uh, neighborhoods and have state agenda really supplement um, uh, building on this type of coalition development so that more neighborhoods have a say in uh, what they need for their housing. Thank you so much. Um, we're going on now to Alder Rommel for the next question. And this kind of actually um, goes off of something Mr. Credit Williams said about forever chemicals. Alder Rommel, you've talked about the importance of protecting clean drinking water, uh, combating PFAS, the group of chemicals linked to cancer, reproductive problems, and a host of other health issues. Lawmakers this session passed one bill to limit the use of firefighting foam and introduced others to incentivize egg producers to reduce nitrogen use and, and a lot more. What other state level changes do you think are needed in this area? Thank you for asking about water. It's one of the important issues that motivated me to run. I mean, safe drinking water is a human right. And through the siting of F-35s at Truax, I learned that PFAS had contaminated the soil and the groundwater and Starkweather Creek and fish that people eat near Lake Monona. And so not only did I organize to defend and clean up and urge the department of work with the DNR to urge the US Air Force to clean up that site, which they have not yet done. They haven't really even really studied the site enough to come up with a cleanup plan. But we have a lot of chemicals in our water that are um, that we need to work around around the state. You know, from CAFOs, fecal contamination, phosphorus, pharmaceuticals, nitrates, industrial contaminants, iron, as well as sodium. So it is a fundamental human issue that all of us face, and perhaps an issue we could work across the aisle with opponent, uh, the Republicans who also need to drink water. Um, so on the, on the PFAS, the, the State Department of Health Services is working on investigating standards for PFAS and other compounds like hexavalent chromium. And so I would really support using the science they come up with and then rigorously doing the best standards we can do. And then we need to continue fighting with, for cleanup at Truax and Starkweather Creek and Well 15, which was closed because of contamination. Our well waters are in jeopardy across the state and I, I'm sure all of us um, would work together on, on making sure clean drinking water is available to everyone. Thank you so much. 
Um, just a status update on the number of responses we all have. Mr. Bradison, you have one left. Um, Ms. Driscoll, you have one left. And Ms. Marsh, you have one left, just so we all are aware of that going into the final couple of questions. Um, seeing no hands, I will, oh, Ms. Driscoll, please go ahead. Sorry about that. No problem, thank you so much. Yeah, um, in addition to the initiatives that Marsha mentioned, um, I would also advocate for the passage of the CLEAR Act, um, which establishes monitoring requirements, and it requires the DNR to make a determination of accept acceptable environmental levels and requires action when those levels exceed uh, to prevent public health risks. And when it comes to you know, our lakes, it, there's such a treasure in our community, and there's been a major issue with phosphorus, which I've worked on here locally with the urban stormwater. Um, I worked with the city and the county to help remove leaves from the street that contribute to the phosphorus in the lakes. But an even larger issue is with the um, agriculture, with the farm runoff that's happening because of um, leaky crops, where when there's a lot, of, when there's soil exposed, uh, the phosphorus can get into the waterways and down into the lakes. So I would introduce a soil health and continuous cover crop program in the DNR um, that would allow the cover crops to prevent the runoff that's happening into the, our waterways. Thank you. Thank you. Um, seeing no other hands, Alder Rummel, we're going to go back to you for 30 seconds if you want to wrap up this topic. Thank you. My computer is slower than my than you are. Um, again, I think um, it comes back also to how we, it's an environmental justice issue to have safe water. So whether it's um, how we do agriculture or how we clean up industrial sites, our groundwater is something that is something that is going to protect us in the future. And it's a key value for me as I as I work forward. And I would work on that at the state level to make sure that we protect groundwater. Thank you so much. Um, Ms. Driscoll, we're gonna go back to you now actually. Addressing climate change is one of your top priorities. Um, Respondents to our people's agenda were curious about what steps candidates would take and how they would use the, their platforms to convince others to care about the issue. Governor Tony Evers has created a climate change task force He's formed an Office of Sustainability and Clean Energy, and he set a goal of eliminating carbon-based carbon fuels by 2050. How do you want the state to build off of that work? Yeah, well, I'm really happy about the work that Governor Evers is doing. Um, and you know, as we know, if global temperatures rise more than a degree and a half Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the fate of our world will be catastrophic for humans, and we can and must do more here in Wisconsin. And oftentimes, it's communities of color that are hit first, and they're hit the worst. Um, and if we just focus, you know, on carbon offsets, even after carbon is offset, captured, or mitigated, burning coal is a danger to our environment and to our health. And pollution um, from coal plants drives climate change, so that's something I've worked on with Beyond Coal Coalition. I worked on helping close coal plants and focus more on renewable energy. So I also got involved with a plan to help the school district switch over to 100% renewable energy um, with a 100% renewable energy resolution by 2040. So I worked with a, some students and a couple of other parents and we got that passed last year. Um, and what I would do, you know, at the state level is I would push for a goal that is in line with the Green New Deal of 100% renewable energy by 2030. 
and also work on simultaneously increasing energy efficiency and developing, developing the infrastructure that we need here in Wisconsin to dramatically increase solar and wind energy. And it's really important that we have a comprehensive plan um, that creates jobs and creates good livable wage jobs in the process and that is inclusive and ensures equity for all. So I would push for a program called Solar for All and also EVs for All. Um, so that ensures that everybody can benefit from cleaner and more economical technologies. Um, and solar can really be put anywhere and in so many places. And uh, in the past, you know, coal plants have been located in poor communities and solar can flip that around and we can uh, get clean energy and the economic impacts um, will be great for all communities in our state. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mr. Bradison, I saw your hand. Would you like to go? Yes. Uh, clean air and water are important to everyone. We need to go with the best science on the environment. I find it strange that this is a partisan issue at all. With the Trump administration rolling back environmental protections, the state needs to step up now more than ever. Climate change is real. I believe in science and we should listen to the scientists for solutions. We should be aggressive in making the state carbon the state carbon neutral. Wisconsin should be a leader in the environment, and I believe it can help the economy not hurt it. I had a commercial tenant that employed many well-paid engineers um, doing solar or doing uh, windmills. Alternative energy approaches create jobs, as the wind and solar industry have shown. I do not buy the argument that we cannot afford to hurt businesses with environmental legislation. We cannot afford to do nothing. We must act now. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Marsh, please go ahead. Thank you. So the one thing I want to address is just how we can do this in the upcoming future. So Lieutenant Governor Barnes just had his fifth listening session for the Governor's Task Force on Climate Change. And I think about 1,000 people attended. It was virtual, which is a really good sign. But when this task force is done, they're gonna come out with a series of recommendations. And I think that's our opportunity to really push for those recommendations for policies to move us in the right direction. So oftentimes, you know, what I saw with working with the state, we these task force would be set up and then, you know, they would have progress with certain legislation being moved forward. I saw this with the Suicide Prevention Task Force, but, um, but we really need, especially with climate change, we need the, the public at large to really pay attention to this and to educate and to communicate so that things get passed because oftentimes the recommendations, only a few are taken and it's not the bold policy that we need. So I think this is a really great opportunity coming up. Thank you for that. Um, Ms. Driscoll, we're going back to you. 30 seconds to wrap up this topic. Yeah, I'd also like to add that um, Wisconsin is one of the only states in the Great Lakes region that doesn't have um, programs and policies in place to actively promote concept, concepts of environmental justice. So I would also um, introduce an Office of Environmental Justice, um, and that would address issues uh, around what I talked about, where communities of color that are impacted the most um, it would uh, create more equity in the state and create more safety for everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Ms. Vandermulen, we're going to you for the last question. Um, if you were elected, you know, you would be the first openly autistic legislator in the country, which you have said would be a milestone that's quote, incredibly important to the disability community. You've already talked a, a, about at length um, doing away with the sub-minimum wage, but what other state level policy changes would you advocate for to improve the lives of Wisconsinites with disabilities? 
I would I would create um, the number one thing I would create is a housing initiative that would take into account the ability for for housing for individuals with disabilities. Oftentimes, without what's called an able account, individuals with disabilities can't have more than two thousand dollars a month ever, which means trying to get a down payment is nearly impossible. I want to create either a rent control policy or a policy such as which I used, which was called Moving Out, which is an organization that helped individuals to buy their first home. The only way I could afford to live downtown as a non-driver was to be able to use what a concept known as industrialized zoning, which is no longer legal under the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and moving out to create policies so that I would be able to live downtown. I want to try and bring back industrialized zoning in a different form. I think it's necessary because it's the only way individuals with disabilities are going to be able to live in every neighborhood in Madison. I don't just want affordable housing, I want accessible housing. Thank you so much. Um, that wraps up all of the questions and uh, I'm a little over time. So sorry about that guys, I tried to keep us on track. Um, we're gonna move on to closing remarks now and this, that means reverse order from opening remarks. So that means Ms. Marsh, you get to go first. You have two minutes to give closing remarks. All right. Great, thank you. Well, let me just say thank you again to the CAP Times for hosting this event and also to the rest of the candidates. It's, um, I know we've never met in person, um, but it's great to be in this type of forum and to have this dialogue so in such a big field right here. Um, so I just wanna end by saying, to me, being an effective lawmaker means being an effective communicator. It's our job to listen to residents and communicate on their behalf. And what I want to really say is I will be your best advocate for the issues you care most deeply about. I'm the only communications professional in the race. I have used these skills and devoted my career to raising the voices of others. While working as an international student advisor at both UW Oshkosh and Georgetown University, I've advocated for every student that walked through my door, helping them navigate the US immigration system. I've advocated for LGBTQ youth. This is the community I'm a proud member of. And most recently, I was advocating for mental health initiatives while working for the state of Wisconsin, as I've mentioned, um, throughout this forum. And I will draw on this institutional knowledge to effectively fight for the issues and needs of our community. That's why I ask for your vote in the upcoming primary and look forward to not only raising your voice, but working alongside of you as we push forward progressive and innovative policies for our state. And if elected, I promise to lead with empathy and to do my best to help every single resident who walks through my door. So most importantly, I promise to put people above politics. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Craddock Williams, you're next. Thank you, Cap Times, uh, and thank you everyone else. This is an amazing experience, and um, good luck in your races. Uh, this seat is a power seat. Uh, to be real, this is a gerrymandered seat, and we need people in position who will push and fight and be a mentor and pull in the next generation of leaders in other districts, and also locally here in Dane County to hold our people accountable here in Madison, in Dane County, where there's the worst disparities for black people right now. And I've heard a lot of people using black people in low-income communities of color as talking points, but I did not hear effective measures to bring them out of the situations they have through intersectional 
uh, legislation. And that's what's needed. We need to have a holistic approach. And these are the community members. These are the community that I am from. This is my community. I grew up here. Uh, the people invested in me. And I have been doing the work through financial education, through workforce development, as a police officer, teaching implicit bias in our communities, pushing for reforms for years. And I want to bring this to the next level. I want to be in that position to go to the GOP and really take it to them because they cannot challenge a black male police officer with these experiences and my testimony and the community's testimony and bringing their voice to the Capitol. Let's make some effective change here in Wisconsin right now. This is our chance and we also have a chance through the police chief here in Madison and soon enough the Dane County a Sheriff Office. Uh, there's major turnover. Don't be complacent with community listening sessions. Get your voices heard, make effective change and make, it, make sure that there's people in office who is reflective of your values. That's the most important thing right now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Vandermeulen, you're up next. Thank you. I'd like to thank the CAP Times for inviting me to participate in this debate. I found this to be an excellent event, and I thank you very much for hosting it. As you've heard, I have a lot of plans for the 76th District. I want to reform our criminal justice system. I want to make it our public education system more equitable. I want to expunge nonviolent drug convictions, and I want to get rid of the sub-minimum wage. I'm used to overcoming obstacles. I've done it all my life. At three, I got kicked out of, out of preschool for not walking right. At six, I was supposed to be in an institution and had to sue to get into public education. I understand the challenges and I'm willing to take them head on. This Sunday marks the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the thing that gave me my rights when I was 12 years old. It's time to have an autistic, openly autistic individual in the 76th Assembly District, and I ask you to vote for Vandermeulen on August 11th. Thank you so much. Ms. Driscoll, you're up next with your closing statements. Thank you, Brianna and Cap Times. And it's been so great to hear from all of you wonderful candidates tonight. It's clear that it's gonna be a really hard decision for voters to make. Uh, what differentiates me in this race is I've already been working on a broad range of these important issues for years. I'm proud of the coalition of elected officials from the majority of the school board to former Dane County Executive Kathleen Falk who are supporting me because of the work I have done both as a leader and behind the scenes. As we discussed, we are experiencing multiple crises uh, from the gun violence epidemic to the threat of global climate change to the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and racism. If these past few months have shown us anything, it is that we need strong leaders to fight for all of us. To overcome the crises we face, we need real action. From working on environmental and gun violence prevention issues to advocating for access to healthcare and for survivors of sexual assault, Anywhere I've seen problems, I've looked for solutions. I worked with the school board to pass the 100% Renewable Energy Resolution at MMSD and was Madison legislative lead for Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. I've used my voice to advocate for investing in youth rather than policing them in schools. I've shown up to take a strong stance against the F-35s that disproportionately harm black and brown communities. Everyone has their reasons to fight. I fight because white supremacy needs to be dismantled at every level of our institutions. I fight because people I love died due to lack of adequate or affordable healthcare. 
I fight because gun violence is an issue that has not only touched the lives of many Wisconsinites, but has affected me personally. I fight because we all deserve a greener, cleaner future. I fight because we need to come out of this current crisis ready to create a Wisconsin that works for everyone. Now is the time for real action. I've been in this fight for years, and now I'm ready to fight as your state representative at the Capitol. I'm asking for your vote on or before August 11th. Thank you. Thank you. Up next is Alder Rummel. You have two minutes, Alder. Thank you, everyone. It's been great to be here with you and with the Cap Times for having such a great debate. I am running because state preemptions by the Republican-controlled legislature pissed me off. I'm tired of deciding whether a progressive initiative will be immediately preempted at the state level. Local government and local communities have been harmed by Republican efforts to dismantle progressive local laws. I have 13 years experience as a progressive legislator with a proven record of accomplishments, including building hundreds of affordable housing units, doing sustainable economic development, water protection, and police accountability. I worked with the community to oppose F-35s. I worked with my colleagues to apply a racial equity and social justice lens to all city decisions. No one else in the race has worked year in and year out on the breadth of issues that I have that will affect this district. We must lead Wisconsin into a future where people of color do not fear for their lives. We must repair the economy before those who have lost their jobs are turned out onto the streets because they cannot pay mortgages or write checks for rent. We must defund the increasing militarization of our country before any more people are abducted without cause from all of our city streets. We must guarantee the right to safe food, to clean air, and to safe drinking water for every child, but especially for those who are black and brown, who are still drinking unsafe water in Detroit and living next to the leaking pool of industrial toxins. We must fully fund healthcare for everyone, and we must move to a Green New Deal as soon as we can. Republicans have walked away from the responsibilities, but my whole life I have worked to fight for the power of people to stand up. I am not afraid to fight, and I have the track record to prove it. We can't go back to the old normal. I'm Marcia Rummel, and I'm asking for your vote in the August 11th primary. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Hong, you're next. Thank you, Brianna, Chris, the Cap Times, the other candidates, um, and to the viewers. Look, I haven't followed the trajectory for how one is elected to office, but we should have more people like me, a mom, a pro-worker small business owner, and a community organizer who values strengthening our workforce and understands that our role right now is to help people, and I'm acting now. I'm a co-founder of Cook It Forward. It's an initiative that reduces the pandemic's economic impact on local restaurants while ensuring that food gets into the hands of some of our most vulnerable neighbors with last mile delivery drivers. It's an intersectional project done through an equity lens. I believe this community and so many more across the state value uniting voices and they know we need change. I can make change happen because I have at every point of my life. I've made a difference as a mom supporting other moms in the culinary industry by creating opportunities like Femstival, an art and food festival with all women and non-binary vendors aimed to cultivate economic inclusivity. And finally, as an organizer of the Cookie Grab fundraiser, raising over $70,000 for Planned Parenthood. I've also been seeking action from other elected officials and advocating for relief for small independent businesses. 
Like I'm running because I care, but also because I'm scared. I know so many other people are feeling this too. But with this campaign, I'm choosing to transform this fear into leadership because I still have hope. We need people like me who are feeling the burden and fearing for their lives and livelihood to have a voice in that legislature right now. I fight because I know I have a responsibility to this community and I will continue to be a fighter and a leader for the people of this state as your next representative. You can join the fight at hongforassembly.com. That's hong, the number four, assembly.com. And I hope to earn your vote on August 11th or before. Thank you. Thank you. Last but not least, Mr. Bradison, please go ahead. Uh, again, I wanna thank the CAP Times for hosting this debate. My top priorities shall be ending voter suppression, fair redistricting, advocating for more affordable housing, sufficient funding for K through 12 education, and restoring the university of the prestige it recently had. I want to thank all my opponents for running clean campaigns. I do not believe that we are all that far apart on the important issues to so. You the voters have a hard decision to make, and that is who do you think will be the most effective getting things done? I say it is me. I have been successful in business for the past 40 years, overcoming objections and obstacles put in front of me by people way more clever than Robin Voss. I can work across the aisle. I am a leader with common sense, compassion for people's needs. I understand economics and I believe in science. For the last 40 years, I've been listening to people's needs and finding solutions to their problems. I have vast knowledge of housing, including low income and senior housing. I have always strived to and shall continue to treat everyone fairly with respect and dignity. I know how to get things done. Wisconsin needs vision, not division. That is why I am running for state assembly in the 76th district and would appreciate your vote. Vote for Dewey Bradison. If you would like more information, go to deweyforassembly.com. That's deweyforassembly.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thanks. Thank you all for participating this evening and thanks to those who have tuned in. Once again, the primary between these seven candidates is on August 11th and the winner of that election will go on to face Republican Patrick Hall in November. Tell us about the questions or key issues you want candidates to address. Please visit go.captimes.com PA to help us build our people's agenda. And be sure to tune in next week, Wednesday at 7 p.m. when we will hold our final legislative debate of the primary cycle, this time for Senate District 26. Have a good night, everyone. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.